Well, folks, how's the form? Welcome to Best of Belfast, the show that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. Today's story starts in tragedy. But just like those great films and books and stories, it ends in triumph. Max Mackin is an entrepreneur and movie buff from Belfast, Northern Ireland. As probably the last person in the UK to get polio, Max had a very short-lived school career. At 18 years old, with no real experience or qualifications, Max moved to London to seek his fortune. After stumbling into a career in recruitment, he painstakingly worked his way up through the company and left as the head of UK operations. Now back in Belfast, he runs two successful businesses in the city centre, Black Fox Solutions and Reactive Recruitment. In this episode, we talk about Max's early childhood. So the petrol bombed our house. Uh, we'd leave immediately. What it was like growing up with polio in West Belfast. And a junior doctor diagnosed me. Junior doctor sort of says, like, Mrs. Mackin, do you know your son has polio? And the importance of backing yourself and seizing opportunities. So I was going through imposter syndrome without knowing imposter syndrome existed. And he goes, could you do that? And I was like, yes, 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 and yes. Honestly, Max is an absolute inspiration. His success story is truly, truly incredible. And I know that's one you're going to learn a lot from. So, without further ado, let's go. Hi, I'm Max Mackin, and you are listening to Best of Belfast. All right, guys, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson, and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates our wee country, Northern Ireland. Each episode gives you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the incredible people who call this place home through our unfiltered conversations. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Bass, Barclay Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Support for Best of Belfast comes from our Producers Club, where listeners just like you pledge as little as £1 a month in exchange for exclusive perks, invitations to live podcasts, some Northern Irish swag, and much, much more. Massive, massive thank you to all of you who are part of that, especially our Titanic producers, Town Square Cafe, Gavin Wall, Ali Hart, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, and of course, the Omobass team. We could not do this show without our producers, and thanks to your support, we can keep it running and allowed to stay ad-free. So, really appreciate you. To find out more about the great work these guys do, and support us on our journey to 100 interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Okay, that's it for me. Time to jump straight into today's conversation with this week's local legend. Same as a kid, and, and you, you watch TV and stuff. Mm-hmm. There was no, I mean, I don't know what your family background and stuff is, but my family background was very working class. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know any rich people. So my, uh, my view of what a rich person was was someone who wore a suit. Always, yeah. even at home, right? <laughs> and they wore the jackets, pajama suit. <laughs> they never took the jacket off. The jacket always stayed on mm-hmm. all the time, right? And they'd come in from work, and they're always having affairs with everybody. <laughs> they'd come in from work, and there'd be this big globe in the corner of the room, mm-hmm. which was a drinks cabinet. Yeah, of course. And they'd go over and they'd flip up the drinks cabinet and they'd pour themselves a whiskey or some sort of brown liqueur drink with ice, and they'd take a drink and they'd go, "God damn it." God damn it. <laughs> Right? And then what time's what time's dinner? And I go, dinner's at seven thirty. And I went, okay, I'm just gonna go change. And then they go and change and come back down in a different suit. Yeah. 
No, you sort of, but then, because TV was your A wee velvety suit, though, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, TV yeah. was the only sort of, like, uh, medium that you had to sort of, like, mm. see into this world. Yeah. And, of course, completely not true. But that's what it was like. So that's what you kind of kind of uh, coveted. That's yeah. what you kind of sort of lusted after. Yeah. But then you'd look around and you'd go, well, there's no role model like that at all. Mm. There's just no one to go, I can be like him. Mm-hmm. And I think you need that. I mm-hmm. think sort of, if you grew up in an environment, that's why people uh, who have children from wealthy backgrounds usually go on to read, that, sorry, to lead wealthy lives mm-hmm. because they have a role model mm-hmm. and they've seen someone who did it where if your dad's like a bus driver, if your dad works in the parks or he's a grave digger or he works in, in sanitation like waste bin men and stuff, mm-hmm. that's the level that you see yeah. as you grow up. I don't think people realise or even accept sort of how much influence that has in your life as a kid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And someone like yourself, Matthew, you said, so like you had to move away mm-hmm. to get a full appreciation of who, probably who you are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what your va- no, but seriously. No, you're probably who you are head, and who yeah. your values are yeah. and, and what type of person you are. You're probably a bit conflicted. Uh, we've been angry, so bloody get this place, this place nowhere. Sure. And then when you go away, you kind of, uh, it's a great leveler, I would say, having to pay your own electricity, <laughs> having to pay your own rent, having to go to the laundromat like on a Sunday to do your clothes, and oh, having man. to know to, to separate the washes or yeah. the colours don't run. Yeah. I, like, I used to have grey shirts for years because mm-hmm. you used to shove everything. So they started off white, yeah. but the women with black socks and black trousers <laughs> and stuff with t-shirts, uh, and they would just turn grey and you just go, I'll just wear them. It's too relatable. And then you couldn't throw it away to say, I'll, I'll buy a new one because yeah, you're skinned. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah, and what you're saying about uh, you know living accommodation in Belfast back in the day, it's funny how in like major cities that's still the case. Like I lived in an apartment with six people, and there was one bathroom. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's say, just the way uh, it was. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I wish, I wish there was a normal bathroom. Not six people, six strangers. <laughs> there were six strangers yeah. who all came from different parts of life, all different things, mm-hmm. and you all have the good on. It's like a wee mini ecosystem. Yeah. Which can cause intense rows and arguments. Oh sure. Over nothing. Yeah. Like you, you take a spoonful of salt and sugar. Did you? Did you? Do that? <laughs> And it's so it's 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 such a big thing. Yeah. But it's not a big thing. I yeah. I, I, I did it all, man. As I say, we were we were in uh in, in rented houses and stuff, yeah. bed sets. Yeah. Jesus Christ, bed sets. Yeah. Okay, so let let's go back then. Um let's go back to the beginning. Um yeah, so sorry. Uh, I'm gonna this is the official sort of start now here. Okay. If that's happy with you. Or if you yeah. that's good with you. Um so you grew up on the shore road. No, I was born. You were born on the shore road. Born there. Uh, can I talk about the political element? Go for it. Can I? Well, shore road. Uh, it's a place called Mount Vernon, which which now you'd see it as you drive up the shore road. Is this uh, fantastic mural of these uh, balaclavaed men with blue eyes mm-hmm. on it? It's, it was a very sort of like Protestant area, or is, and it was. Uh, and at some stage, the people who lived there decided they didn't want uh, Catholics or people from the nicest areas living with them. So the petrol bombed our house. Uh, we'd leave immediately. And I wow. remember sort of growing up, I never, funny enough too, I never mentioned it, I never sort of brought it up, but I used to sort of think, why is there no pictures of us when we were no young? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why yeah. is there no pictures of my mum yeah. and my dad's wedding album or my granny and granddad? It's because everything was burnt. Wow. Everything kind of sort of went up in smoke. We were able to sort of just leave, I believe, with what we could carry. And as the youngest, there was, there was seven of us. So me, my four brothers, my two sisters, and then my mum and dad. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I remember it was kind of like, like, like sort of, have you ever seen the movie Escape from New York? Where yeah. everything was just on fire, cars burning, rats going off everywhere, police and army everywhere. Uh, and my dad had to, to, to navigate across Belfast. And, and luckily enough, you know, and as it turns out, uh, my dad waved this, this taxi down. And it was a, a Protestant guy. 
told him what had happened, and he goes drinking in, and, and he probably, you know, he, he, like, like his own safety was at risk, possibly mm -hmm. taking us across all those, like, terrible sort of, like, rats and areas to try and get us to sort of safety. We managed to get into West Belfast, stayed in my aunt for two or three months, I believe, and then we get housed in West Belfast. Uh -huh. So it was maybe about one and a half wow. we moved to West Belfast. I suppose it would be good uh, at this point. I'm going to start here. I'm going to start in a really ignorant place. What is polio? And okay. why Why do we not see it Polio today? Uh, polio is, is like it's a virus, right? And it can kill you. It can leave you paralyzed from the neck down. It, it can do all sorts of damage to mm -hmm. you. Right? Uh, and it was a virus. And, and the way you catch it is like you catch a cold. Wow. So the, the, the initial symptoms are runny nose, drowsiness, and a bit of a fever. They're the initial symptoms, right? Which was why it was so hard to, to, to try and catch and contain mm -hmm. because it, it was just like the cold. Yeah. Just like having the cold. At, at the time, I, I don't know now with kids and stuff, but you used to get sugar lumps. So it was an, uh, an immunization thing and you'd go and get three sugar lumps uh, at different dates and that was the vaccine that stopped you being able to contact the virus polio. Mm -hmm. And I'd had two of them and I developed uh, cold symptoms, a runny nose, this is a horrendous story to you. I guess it's just ridiculous. So I developed cold symptoms. I'd had the second sugar lump. I was going for the third sugar lump. And the doctor said, he's got a cold. Uh, take him away for a week until the cold clears up and then bring him back. Mm -hmm. And he can have his third immunization. Uh, and during that week, my mum had noticed it. As I was walking, I was dragging my leg. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was going, that's just, that's, I was only eight months old or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, just sort of walking home, so that's not right. You know, why is he dragging his right leg? Yeah. Why? That's just weird. Why would a child do it? And again, my mum wasn't really educated. She, she wouldn't have been confident talking mm -hmm. to professional people, very working class, if you know what I mean. And the doctor had sort of said to her, he's just looking at attention. Uh, you've got six other children. He's the youngest. He wants more attention. My advice to you is to ignore him. My goodness. I know. Isn't that oh, unbelievable? My goodness. Right? <laughs> so my poor wee mum gets dragged back with me uh, and she's watching me trying to get around the house and holding on to stuff and trying to pull myself along. But the doctors told her to ignore me. Crazy. And I got to the stage, she goes, look, I'm not going to ignore this anymore. And she took me down to the hospital. <laughs> and I uh, told the doctor what it was. Doctor, sir, uh, the, the, the receptionist, right, straight in. Took me straight in. And a junior doctor diagnosed me. Junior doctor sort of says, like, Mrs. Mackin, do you know your son has polio? Like, it's all the symptoms of polio. And my mum was like, what, what do you mean polio? Like, Jesus Christ, you know, is, is he going to, like, put him in... in like a private ward all to yeah. himself and, and block everybody off. And he goes, no, no, he, he's already had it. He's, he's All the effects of it have kind of left him, but he's going to have a bad leg. You know, wow. this is where it's the fact that he's going to have polio. One leg's going to be damaged. Um, but you're kind of lucky because, to be fair, it could have wiped out your whole family. It could have killed or infected oh all your goodness. other children. Uh, could have infected you. It could have killed him. Could have killed them. Uh and now he does like the guy would get struck off and, oh, wow. and at the very least sued yeah. to within an inch of his life. Yeah. But nothing happened. Yeah. It was just kind of back in the day. I was like, well, you know, get some right, get some wrong. I know, it's incredible. <laughs> That's mad. But, but that was kind of sort of, you know, my, when you say what was it like growing up and stuff, it was bleak. It was mm. bleak, Matthew. It was kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> and that there kind of, uh, so I'm, I'm the youngest, but then my next brother is, so if you take like my poor and mum, God love her, she's passed away, but I, I had brothers, Jim, Jared, Collie, and Paul. They're the two sisters, Gina and Aileen. And Collie is the second youngest, but he's three years older than me. Mm -hmm. And all my brothers and sisters are all a year older than each other. Mm -hmm. So what had happened was my mum had had six kids. And we mm -hmm. probably went, that's enough. <laughs> you know, I've had six kids, that's enough. Uh, it's big enough family and stuff. 
And then maybe over an anniversary, and <laughs> out, St. Patrick's Day, something like that there. My mom and dad went out and had a bit of a laugh and stuff. They got a bit friendly. Okay, and then three years later, she had another kid. She must have went, jeez, you know, at six kids, and yeah. now I've got seven kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's disabled. And the last one's got polio. And he's disabled, right? So, you know, like, Jesus, what have you done to me? So it was very hard, my mum, because very in the early years, my mum, not so much my dad. My dad was kind of there, thereabouts. He kind of fitted in and fitted out. You know, they didn't have, like, the most perfect relationship. Mm -hmm. But my mum, God love her, you know, uh, she was a hard woman. But she kind of had to be a hard woman. She was, like, disciplinarian. And she was, like... She, she wouldn't push you academically, but she would push you not to feel sorry for yourself. She'd push you not just to sit about and, and, and let things happen. She made me mm -hmm. engage. And, and I think sort of later on that really helped. Wow. You said something uh, on the phone to me the other day, and I thought it was really interesting. It was the kind of the visual image of it really stuck with me. You said, I didn't want to end up like the lad that goes to bingo with his mum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's that, that all about? Because that, that, I thought that was quite powerful. If, if you grew up in the 70s in West Belfast, uh, in school, no one pushed you in school. No one, unless you're really smart, they would push you maybe to go into university and then go to the civil service and get a job in the civil service. I can still, to this day, hear like old women talking about their sons. Jesus, he's got a job in the civil service. He's made for life. That's it. You know what I mean? I'm so proud of him. He's, he's amazing. He's amazing. Uh, and civil service has got its own hierarchy. You know, you can come in. Uh, and, and the lower level jobs are just as crappy as any other lower sure. level jobs. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you just can't get sacked. <laughs> and you get loads of holiday and you don't really work that hard. Uh, uh, unlike the private sector where I work. Uh, that's a joke. But uh, yeah, so anyway, so as I was growing up, I kind of sort of worked out really quickly that sort of like school never really had an interest in me at all. And I missed loads of school because mm. I used to have the wear these like steel braces on my legs that used to break all the time because I'd play try and play football I'd try and claim <laughs> I'd try just as a young boy Harsh. a very active young kid would yeah. want to get on right so and I'd noticed that other kids who had seen who disabilities were, were, were kind of sort of like sit there in the corner wait to be engaged uh, and, and see what happens and I just wasn't like that I was, I was just a very hyperactive mm. sort of kid uh, and it struck me when I got to about 12 or 13, sort of, you know, what am I going to do here? How, you know, what, what does the older life for me sort of hold? And there was a guy called Peter, I won't say his son, but it's Peter, and he had polio, but he had polio in the top half of his body. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, his arm kind of sat in a funny position, but he'd be perfectly mobile, he could walk about yeah. and sort of do stuff. But he would always go to bingo on the Friday night or Saturday, I used to see him go down with his mum with all these old women mm -hmm. uh, and they would kind of, have you, have, you have you ever heard like old women talk and then sort of like laughing and joking as yeah, they go yeah, on yeah. and he just completely fitted in and I remember sort of thinking, is that me? Mm -hmm. is, will I, you know, will I get to the stage because I've got a bad leg, will I never meet somebody uh, and maybe get married and settle down, will I never uh, be able to get a job that depends for myself, will I never be able to sort of like truly sort of like have like just a normal and it wasn't yeah, a yeah. great life it was just a normal life yeah. uh, and I visited myself sort of at 36 with all my mates married now and all the way doing stuff uh, and my mum shouting up hurry up come on we're going to miss it <laughs> and me racing down the stairs to go out with her with all my mates to bingo sure. because that's the life and if you ever see sort of uh, maybe not so much today but back in my day you'd have seen sort of mums who had like uh, disabled children or, 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 or kids with mental issues and stuff and, and that was it. It was the mum's companion for mm -hmm. the, the rest of their lives. You know, people like men in their 40s still going out with their mums. Their mums mm -hmm. getting them dressed, taking them out down to the shops and stuff. You know, really caring. Like, lovely, lovely things to see for their mums, mm -hmm. especially with the, the amount of sort of, like, uh, love they have for the children. But I just sort of went, 
that's the worst thing that ever happened to me. Mm. That would like just kill me. Yeah. I'd, I'd have hated it. But when no one tells you you got any prospects, when no one tells you, do you know what, kid, you, you, if you put your mind to something, you really could achieve things. When schools have no interest in you in mm. your education because they don't think you're that bright yeah. uh, and they don't really care anyway because the schools in that period were never... Not like today's schools or the movies you see where the, the, the teacher takes a real interest in the kids and there's an after-school thing. You're like, Captain, my captain with Robin Williams. <laughs> it just didn't happen. <laughs> like the, the, the teacher just didn't give a toss. Uh, so I had nobody to kind of push me. I had, I had no role models. And you just sort of went, well, that's it. You know, uh, all my mates will get jobs, but they'll get manual-type jobs. Yeah. They'll get jobs in the building game. They'll get jobs doing deliveries. They'll get jobs working in bars. They may want or two get a job in the civil service, but that's mm-hmm. that's not me. Mm-hmm. And even then, when I think back, even if I thought I did get a job there, it would have been out of pity. Yeah, let's give that guy a job and sure. just, just let him fold that paper over and let him sit in the corner. And yeah. you know, and, and we're doing, and they'd be doing it because they want to feel good about it. Yeah. but I wouldn't have felt good about it. Yeah, uh, even to think back now, I sort of think I, I can feel it annoying me to feel that sort of like mm-hmm. as, as being cornered. Yeah. One, because of where I grew up, two, because of the background, and three, because of the polio, mm-hmm. as being cornered into something that, that, that didn't really sort of appeal to me that much. Mm-hmm. Was, I wasn't prepared to, to just sit back and let things happen. I yeah. felt I needed to do something. Yeah. And you did do something? Yeah. Well, it started, I suppose. I mean, how on earth did you make the jump from what the situation you're, you've just told me to move into London? I know. I know. It's nuts. Like, that's mad. I know. Well, I'll give you a bit of background. I went in... I'd met a new doctor when I was about 12 and a half, 13. And he had said, look, I can fix your polio. I can fix your leg. There, there's methods and in, in, in new techniques now that we can, we can use. We can increase the length of your leg. We can, we can do this. We can, we can build it up. We can increase this. We increase that. There are two, two, within two years. And, and he did say, he said, extreme pain, loads of operations. He said, you'll hate me for, for two years. But at the end of the two years, you'll thank me because it will really be worth it. Mm. So, you know, you're sitting there 12 and a half starting to notice girls, mm-hmm. uh, starting to notice your appearance and how you look. And you're also starting to notice how other people view you. Mm. It's interesting being around 12, 13, because you, you start to mature a little bit and you, and you go from being, the, the kid who's just focused on being the kid. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're a kid, you could dress a kid in anything. Sure. And the kid wouldn't care. <laughs> Maybe a bit older, you start worrying about your appearance, you start worrying about how, how other people view you. Yeah. Which, which poses all the bad things. But anyway, so I, I, I jumped on that. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being able to walk, being able to be normal. Mm-hmm. You know, Pinocchio, being a normal kid. <laughs> uh, so I just signed up, hook, line, and sink. And my mom, and funny enough, again, going back, my mom wouldn't question people because that wasn't her way. So I just wanted it done. But maybe in hindsight, my mom should have said, well, hold on, what, what does this actually involve? And has anyone ever did it before? Mm. Is there any examples you can show us? And, and when you say a lot of pain, what do you mean a lot of pain mm. and, and operations? Yeah, please define a lot of pain. Yeah, <laughs> give, me, give me a background, but she didn't. Anyway, so I went in uh, and the first major operation I had went completely wrong. So it went from being able to stay in hospital, I'll just speed this up, for maybe six months, maybe seven months. I was actually in for about 14 months. And then the, the, the two-year period, he said, that at the end of the two years, were, were all fix-up mm. operations. So it was like, uh, I'd go out in the Donald and have plastic surgery because the bone was exposed on my knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, then my ankle, was somewhere on my ankle, I had to have more surgery, which caused loads of skin grafts. I had to have bone taken through my hip. Then my other hip to put into my leg. I had nerves taken out of my arm to put in my leg. And it was all to cover up the initial mistakes that they oh, made the first time. Man. So at the end of it, the guy sort of says to me, uh, and he goes, look, listen, it's not worked the way we think, so you have two options. Uh, you can have these, and he handed me a pair of crutches. He said, are we going to amputate your leg? And I went, well, 
uh, and very calm about it, strangely. I remember I had a, a knocked them out or nutted them at least or tried to assault them. <laughs> Nobody would have. I probably yeah, would have yeah, yeah, after yeah. all that bullshit. Yeah. But um, I kind of went and I'll take the crutches. I've been in hospital too long and I'd felt I'd lost loads of time. Yeah. I thought, this is 17, right? So you think, like, what do you mean you've lost loads of time? You're only 17. But that's, I mean... That's everything when you're that age. Yeah, yeah. And I felt my mates had all the schooling. They, yeah. they all seemed like they had already started on their journey. They had girlfriends, they had jobs, they, they, and they looked like they were going somewhere. And I looked like I was going nowhere, right? And this huge, big plaster cast on my leg. Uh, so much so that usually like, you have like a rubber stopper at the bottom of it. Mm. You've never seen anybody. You rarely see people in plaster these days because they have those. Uh, pumpy uppy yeah. uh, foot cast things yeah, the boot. but they had to use because it was so awkward they had to use a part of a, a car tire at the bottom <laughs> what? to give me leverage I know so it was a huge big thing and I had these like metal spikes coming out of my leg my, my shin uh, with a big steel bar on the end of it and I, I had the at about a year with that trying to wait for the bone to knit mm-hmm. which never really knit actually so I've still got loads of metal every time I go through a, 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 detect, uh, a metal attack on an airplane <laughs> Airport always all like it was off all the time, yeah. And I, and I try telling they're like no, and they want a full search. Yeah. But anyway, so I did that, and I thought that I've really lost time here. Right? And uh, for some reason, man, London came into my head. For some reason, I thought, you know what? If I go to London, I could probably get a job. Mm. I, said, I didn't think I'd get a job here. I thought, you know what? No one's going to employ a disabled kid from West Belfast. Whether you agree with that or not. Uh, that was the way I thought. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to employ a disabled kid from West Belfast with no qualifications and very little education. I'd missed a lot of education. Uh, and I'd look at the newspapers and the first thing newspapers was like, must have qualifications, must have. Mm-hmm. And for the most like idiotic yeah, jobs, sure. really stupid jobs. Yeah, like, yeah, if yeah. I showed you the newspapers from then, you, you'd go to me, they have the laugh. Like, <laughs> honestly, it's ridiculous. But, but again, it, it just did more to alienate me. It did mm-hmm. more to make me feel that I'm, I'm just going to fade, you know, I'm just going to like into oblivion. I, I, I might as well start buying my bingo board and my bingo games now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, and I did, I, I remember even at 17, people say, like, you know, would you feel that low at 17? And I remember thinking, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I've gone through so much, I've, I've endured so much pain and so much problems and, and we things, like see you say pain and stuff, see if you can't get up and go anywhere or you can find a hospital bed for eight months. That's, that's a long time. People mm. go, sure, it was only eight, your ages, or it's only eight months. But if you ask them to do it, they couldn't do it. Like, I'll tell you a funny story. I remember talking to me about it once. And him saying to me, you know what you sound like, mate? You sound like a whinger. You know, I don't want to be rude, but you do. And then about two months later, he broke his ankle. Oh, man. Right? So I went over to see him. And he came out. This, this is just like a few years ago. He'd come out. And he's a really good friend of mine. And he'd come out. And he's like huffing and puffing. He's like, oh, oh, oh. And he goes, you just can't do nothing. I just, I've never felt it in my life. Mm. And he started crying. He's, he welled up. Mm-hmm. And he admits it to this day. He goes, no, it didn't. I said, you did well up. His name is Mark. <laughs> I said, but I remember talking to you about my disability. And you told me to grow up yeah. and stop whinging. Yeah. And you've been on crutches a month. And you broke down in tears. Mm. And he's like, oh, but that was different. That was different. And it wasn't. Di- well, it was actually different because mine was worse. But yeah, so anyway, so the London thing, right? So I came to the conclusion that, and I just heard people had gone to London and got jobs and and I'd never really put much thought into it. I just thought, go to London and get a job. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a guy at the airport going, do you want a job? Do you want a job? <laughs> really, I didn't. You know, it's very naive. Didn't think it was naive. Thought I was like, we switched on guy from Belfast who, you know, street kid who knew his stuff. But uh, of course it wasn't. So I uh, saved up a bit of money, not a lot of money. And I knew somebody was over there already, like a contact which thank God it did because I had no idea the size and the scope of London. Yeah, like, sure. L- London's very like New York. Yeah. And the one thing you know about New York is 
people don't care about you. People are not interested. <laughs> They've got their own legs to go on for. And the other thing I found out was if you don't have money, nobody wants to do either. Right? Mm-hmm. You, in a big city, you need dough. You need money. But anyway, so I went over, uh, got homesick immediately, uh, depressed. Uh, and then, then I was clever enough to work out that you left home for a reason. You know, it's it, you are homesick, and it is making you a bit depressed. But, but think about the reason why you left. Mm. You wanted an opportunity. So, like we were talking earlier, uh, off, 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 Mike, when I said this, like, you know, having to do your laundry, having to buy your pot noodles <laughs> for your Sunday lunch, uh, uh, going around the shops asking for 20 peas for the dryers so you dry your clothes, and then ironing a couple of shirts for the work, for the job that I'd got. Uh, so I managed to get work, and I managed to start paying me own way. Uh, was always on the breadline, was always skint all the time. Uh, was always chasing that. Uh, there's loan companies who do it now. But then, like the week the week leading up to payday, you're always trying to get 20 quid of somebody or 25 quid of somebody. <laughs> just for your bus fares and your lunches and yeah, stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. food. It wasn't to go out and party. And I never had a lot of money to party anyway with rent and stuff. I kind of sort of started off low. I was just happy to have a job. So mm-hmm. he, at that stage, I wouldn't say I was that ambitious. I was just happy to have a job. Mm-hmm. I was just happy to have a life. Uh, I was providing for myself. <clears throat> I suppose in some way, I kind of felt that I'd, I'd, I'd justified my decision to do it. But I was still quite young. You know, you, 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 you go, at, when you're young, you don't realise how young you are. Yeah. If I think back now, and like, even my daughter would say to me, like, I'm going to London. I'd be like, no, you're not. What are you in London for? <laughs> And there'd be no need to go to London now because of the opportunities in Belfast exist. Like, you know, the Belfast that I left is not the Belfast I come home to, mm-hmm. which we shall talk to you about later on. But anyway, so I went over, got a job, got a bed set, uh, worked out how to manage my money so that it didn't go broke. Uh, and then for a couple of years, that was okay. And then I remember sort of thinking, <clears throat> I need to do something. Mm. Right? I'd go out. I'd, by this time, I'd started going out with somebody. Uh and I thought, right, I need to start, you know, I'm talking to people and people say, what are you doing? And say, oh, I do this. And it was a very, it wasn't a very Belfast thing at the yeah. end, but it was a very London thing. Yeah. When you met new people, the first thing so they asked you. So what do you, you do? Was, yeah, what do you do? What do you do? And what do you do? Mm-hmm. And what do you do? And, <laughs> and people would talk. And then you'd have this sort of like little competition where people would work out who had the best job, who yeah. had the best paid job, and who had the crappiest job. Yeah. And invariably in these conversations, it was me who had the crappiest <laughs> job, right, with the lowest paid money. Uh, and I thought, right, I need to do something. You know, I kind of I, I want to be, when someone says, what do you do? And, and to be fair, at this stage, I wasn't really sure what, but I just wanted to be something. I wanted yeah. to have some sort of profession. Yeah. So when I first went over, the first job I got in London was uh, a job in the job centre. Mm-hmm. Right, which was nuts, was nuts. <laughs> just called Harleston. And the people who would come in were just outrageous. If you imagine the sort of, you know, I, I thought it was a bit street smart, but it wasn't. Very naive, quiet, mm-hmm. little kids from Belfast, thrown in the middle of sort of like one of the, the busiest metropolitan cities in the world. Uh, and all these mad people coming in and out, mm-hmm. people screaming, shouting, fighting, mm-hmm. all, all manner of things, right? So it taught you how to kind of deal with people. And then I got a job in the, a, a job centre. So I called centre which helped me do a bit more customer thing. And people would say, you'd be good at sales, you'd be good, you, you'd actually be good in a, like a, a customer-facing sort of type business. <clears throat> and I'd seen an ad, there was a paper used to buy, and I'd seen an ad, it was a wee tiny ad, and it said, Raccon, West End Agency, called Simon, and a number. Mm. So it was very frugal, mm-hmm. just on the, in yeah. the information, right? You must have <laughs> pay to pay. by the letter. Pay by the letter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? So, so and I said to this, I said, I think I could do this. So, you know, it's a bit, and I could say, recruitment consultant, what are you mm. doing? I'm a recruitment consultant. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing, right? Yeah. And I thought what recruitment consultants did 
then was they uh, help people who fall in hard times, struggle to get into work. You know, and I genuinely meant this: people who were alcoholics, people who did have drug problems, yeah, yeah. people who came from broken homes and stuff, and they would help them get into a job. And they'd run this program where the companies would report back to them. Yeah. And you'd see how Matthew or, or Max or Simon would get on. Yeah. And then years later, they'd, they'd get their life together and have a family and have a kid and name the kid after you because <laughs> you were so instrumental in getting them on track and stuff. So I phoned this guy Simon. Right? Oh dear. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, Simon was the owner of the company. Okay. I just thought it was Simon. Right? Yeah. So I was real ballsy. Uh, you know, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I want to come down and see you. And, and I knew my CV at the time. CV looked so poor. Yeah. Uh, even then, now, see what I know now. It, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was like toilet paper. Yeah. That's how bad it was. But even then, I knew it looked. It, it didn't have any any depth to it. You mm-hmm. know, for someone who wants to be a consultant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, the only way I'm going to get this guy to see me is for me to get in front of him. I can't send you the CV in, yeah. and then you read it and call me because you're not going to call me. Yeah. I have to get you to see me. So I just went on, like a, a real charm attack on the phone. <laughs> Simon, how you doing? <laughs> yes, Max. I've seen you've advertised for a job. I'm in the area. Why didn't I pop in and see you? No, you can't pop in and see me. I'm very busy. It'll only take a minute. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I'm not busy. But what are you doing tomorrow? I'm down there tomorrow as well. What are you doing tomorrow? Mm-hmm. No, I'm really busy. Now. What are you doing? And then eventually, I was going like, what about Thursday? What about Friday? What yeah, about yeah, Monday? Yeah, yeah. What about Tuesday? And eventually, he goes like, okay, okay. Why didn't you pop in? Right, but it might not be available. So if you're not avail- if I'm not available, just leave your yeah. CV with the receptionist. I went, you will be available. I'll make sure you're available. You see, if you're not available and you're busy, I'll just wait until I see you. <laughs> so I, I don't know why, but I was just desperate to get this job. Anyway, so we didn't see him, and he, he'd said to the girl called him. He put the phone. And he goes, Jesus Christ, that kid's really good. He, he really closed me. Right, but again, if he'd have said to me, "I'm the managing director of the yeah, business," yeah, yeah. I'd have probably not as been yep, forthright. Sure, so sure. that we, the stars kind of helped a little bit. So I went in and seen them, and it was just it was a West End agency. They they turned over to, uh, maybe a couple of million a year. Right? A guy called Bill and Simon owned the company, and there's a guy called Gary uh, who who I'd be working for if I got the job. And when I met Gary, uh, my image of what I recruit something completely changed because this guy walked out. Yeah, sat down and immediately I thought he's a shark mm. he's a shark mm-hmm. he, he never mentioned once about helping people he never mentioned once about uh, doing good His, it was a facility we, we find people for companies who need them to take on board to push their brand to push their profits mm-hmm. further we find company staff and candidates who want to further their careers who want to make more money who want more opportunity who want greater sort of lifestyle sort of choices he said and they come through us and we have to compete with hundreds of other people, hundreds of other companies. Uh, and it means being on the phone all the time and being ruthless. Mm. And he goes, could you do that? And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Right? And then he said, he goes, you know, because if you can do that, you're going to be earning between fifty five and £65,000 a year. And to me, that was like winning the lottery. I was like, like, like what? Sure. What? Didn't believe him, thought he was a liar. But did enough. And funny enough, that part of the reason why they said they gave me a go was because they felt that a young kid disabled who'd moved from Belfast to London to try and get work must be ambitious. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, I never had seen myself as someone who's ambitious. Yeah. Competitive, determined, but not ambitious. Yeah. Uh, so they'd give me a go. And I thought, right, here we go. I'm, I'm for, and, and all they did was get me on the pitch, right? So I had to stay on the pitch. That, that, that's an important thing. It's, they weren't coming in and giving me access or exposure to this really lucrative business. You had to go out and find this business. You had to be sort of very determined. And also, you're working in, in an office full of piranhas. Everybody else is on the same boat. 
everybody else is trying to do as well as they possibly can. And the disadvantage I had was one, the disability. Two, I hadn't, I hadn't come from that background. Uh, three, the majority of the people I worked with were middle class to upper middle class London English people with very nice, very posh accents. Queen's English, yeah. Uh, who'd come from families who had an expectation of them to do well. So th- they wouldn't have been under as much pressure, I think, as I would have been. Certainly their own type of pressure because it was competitive. Uh, and this company was expanding. So, you know, within, within five years, this company had offices in, in Amsterdam, uh, in France, in, in Scotland, in Dublin, in Birmingham, out around the M4 corridor. So from one office, within five years to maybe like six or seven offices, it expanded quite, quite quickly. But it expanded quite quickly because we had the talent pool within. There was like really good, really good business people working there, really good uh, guys who, who kind of knew their stuff. And I felt in competition with them all the time. And I felt there were maybe two steps, three steps ahead of me, given their background, given, 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 like, what I mean is, is sort of, have you ever heard of uh, imposter syndrome? Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, imposter syndrome, for those who don't know it, is someone who's in a job, you sort of think, I shouldn't be here. And within a matter of months, someone's going to find out that I'm a fraud and they're going to sack me because there's no way I should be here. Yeah. And a lot of famous people and a lot of people who are like pop stars and stuff or people who invent stuff uh, have this. So I was going through imposter syndrome without knowing imposter syndrome existed. And I thought, right, how do I, where, where's my angle? How, how can I compete with these guys at their level? Uh, the, 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 they're too elegant. They, they they can talk really confidently. Where Sundays when I'm talking to people on the phone and stuff, depending on who they are, I'll I'll go back to the old sort of working class thing. You know, yes, Mister Tip my hat, Mister. Yeah. This guy's really important. He shouldn't. I, I'm only interrupting them. And I thought, right, if you work harder than they work, if you put more effort in than they do, no matter how far in front they are, you'll eventually catch them. Mm. And if you keep up that work rate, you'll overtake them. Mm. Right, it's really simple philosophy. Really, really simple sort of piece of it. Self advice. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Right, so true. Right, and and genuinely, that's that's what I come up with. That was my plan. Remember, people saying, uh, "No, do a five year plan, do mm-hmm. a business plan, which promote this here, do a cost analysis and stuff." And really, it's just like work harder than you. That's probably <laughs> the best business plan you can have. If I work harder than you. In fact, have you heard the joke about the two guys are filming in Africa? No. And they're filming the, the, the lands. And the lands start to get closer and closer. And one of the guys opens the bags and takes out a pair of nakes and puts the nakes on. And the other guy laughs at him. He goes, mate, you will never outrun a land with a pair of nakes. He goes, I don't have to. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> and that's what it was kind of like. I sort of thought to do it. So put it into play. Uh, and, and there's loads you have to learn. Like the recruitment industry... To be a good recruitment consultant takes you maybe two, two, three years to learn the whole process of everything, sorry, of everything that you do. Uh, and in doing that there and, and working hard, I kind of accelerated. So we'd never done work in the city of, of London where all the banks are. And I, I started doing work there. So I opened a brand new division that they never had. So they had to promote me into management. Mm-hmm. I don't think they wanted to. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think they wanted to. Uh, I think they kind of just thought I was maybe still too rough and ready wasn't polished enough but it was it was a really good motivator uh, I worked really well with my team uh, the guys who worked for me I, I, I kind of made a, an unconscious business decision that if you're going to work for me I'll take an interest in you which later proved really beneficial because a lot of the guys who had seen the management were management just for themselves it was mm-hmm. to make them look good it was to make them more money it was to push their their own promotion further 
and and they'd be really callous sometimes when people are really offhand and dismissive if somebody had a need or something. I went, I don't want to be that type of person. I want to be somebody that inspires people and, and somebody who people wants to work for. So again, very early on, made a decision on what type of business person I'd want to be and want to move forward. So I did the city thing, did really well. And they couldn't recognise it. And the office that I'd left originally, I'd kind of had four or five managers come in, bad managers, and, and, and took the business back. So this was a business that was just on the forefront of recruitment, earning, earning loads of money for the owners. And, and they let it take care of itself for too long. And it started to have like a counterculture. Okay. Where people were coming in late, people were taking days off, people weren't working as hard as they should have been working, people weren't maximizing the opportunities, people weren't doing enough customer care, people weren't managing the database properly, people weren't looking at the profits uh, and, and trying to manage that there and, and then manage new business. And I think... In hindsight, the business probably made too much money for the owners, mm-hmm. and they didn't really care. Mm-hmm. And they must have like dipped out for about two years. But after about two years, they got back on track. Yeah, they thought, right, this 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 business is, is screwed. You know, we we really let it go. One of the the, the guys who who I love dearly, he's, he's a brilliant mentor, Russell Clements, and sort of says, look, you know, I walked through the office and I just couldn't believe how crap it is. Yeah, you know, why has it gone to being such a powerhouse of a business? To this, mm-hmm. like even the people we employ, I don't like. Yeah, they're just they're just like <laughs> ugly, sort of lazy, uh, excuse looking sort of thing. But they were, they were. Yeah. Uh, and and the lane was they went through everybody, and someone sort of says, "Why didn't you give it the max? Max is really good at that type of thing. Give it the max." And again, they were reluctant to do it, and they sort of went, "You know what? We've had four or five people who's failed. Why not?" So they gave me a go, uh, and I went in, and for about twenty two months, I worked really hard changing a counterculture. Uh, very recently, uh, have you ever heard of change management or, or, or people trying to change a culture for business? you got to do little small bits, show mm. that it works, then do small bits more, show that it works, and at the same time, get rid of all the instigators. Mm-hmm. So I remember saying to the director at the time, that there was 25 senior consultants working there. So that's like sort of top-notch end people, all earn a lot of money. Uh, and he goes, what's your plan? And I said, I want to sack them all. And he went, what? I said, I want to be able to sack or get them to leave every one of them. I said, what do you mean every one of them? And I said, they don't feel that they can get sacked. They feel that they're doing us a favor. They feel that when they come into work, they don't have no contract of employment. There's no set rules that they're supposed to do stuff. They feel by being here, they're doing us a favor. And I need to change that. Yeah. So deliberately, I targeted the most senior people, uh, pushed them, put them under pressure, give them targets. Uh, they were the ones... Who, who had the counterculture. So if new people come in, they would like, if they try to do well or try to work hard, they would slag them off. Yeah. They'd make fun of them. Yeah. Playground type sort of tactics, bully people into submission so they don't make them look bad. And I explained this to him. I said, look, listen, there's a new regime. I'm not putting up with this. I've, I've gone through from trainee to the person I am now by working hard. I know it works. I know the money you can earn. You guys are stopping us doing it. So either you either get with the program or I'm going to fire you. Yeah. Uh, and, and I did. I either fired them or they left before they get fired. Brought in a new new, new uh, type of candidate, consultant that we wanted. Went back and looked. What they were doing, they were just giving people jobs because they liked them. They liked football. What, what was that about? <laughs> and I said, no, let's look at people's backgrounds. Let's look at the reason what motivates them. Let's look at why they'd want to sort of come in and do a job that it is pressurized, it is hard, but it is rewarding. So there's got to be like sort of things you can look at in their life and say, actually, do you know what? That demonstrates a hard work ethic. That demonstrates the guy wants to do well. That demonstrates that the guy uh, wants to be a leader. So like people who were like rugby captains, people who were captains of their school team, people who were prefects, people who wanted responsibility to do well. We, we completely changed the dynamic of what we're looking for. And then we targeted people like that. And then within 
two and a half, three years, it got back to being the biggest billing business wow. in the whole group, from being one of the worst just within three years. So so again, they sort of go, uh, look what you're good at and push them out. So while that was happening, there was another business that was kind of going down the, the toilet. Okay. Uh, and they were going to close it. And and, and the, the MD at the time, it sort of says, why don't we give it the max? Mm-hmm. Give it the max, see what max can do. Like he did it with London, see if he can do it with this. Uh, and I went out to that business and I remember uh, just thinking, Jesus Christ, this is like, sorry for swearing, this is like really just run down business. Mm. It's, it's like something you would see in a dull office or a job center. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. really run. There was one guy wearing jeans, which is no biggie now, but if you're talking about consultants, in a business, if you go back to 1996, 1997, and you went to see a solicitor or you went to see a, an accountant and they came out, you were in a pair of jeans and shoes, sure. you would sort of go, mate, what the hell? 100%. It was just, it was a different culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know what, again, these guys, there's no direction, they've, they've got no purpose, there's there's no goal, they can't see the finish line. So no one's told them the story, no one's sold them the dream of what they can do and, and what they need to do. And bit by bit, they just let it get worse and worse and worse and fracture and fracture and fracture. So again, these guys think they're coming into work and they're doing us a favour. Mm-hmm. So straight away, right, guys, if you still start doing your job, I'm going to sack you. Wow. Right? But we went to the pub on the Friday and there was two other recruitment businesses that I knew in that area uh, and all their guys were in the pub and they were all high-fiving each other and they all looked really sharp, real like good suits, uh, all buying each other drinks and trying to chat up girls and stuff. And the guys that I had come over to manage all stood in the corner. Right? <laughs> And they didn't go and say who wants a drink. They're going by their own drink. And I went, man, there's no team spirit here. There's no yeah. identity. There's, there's no pride. So, so straight away, the focus was, right, reinstall the pride. Get, get wins under their hats. So start training them again. And that was even quicker. And the good thing about it was that the London guys were really cynical. So they were really against change. Yeah, like, yeah. Who are you? Who are you coming in here? Patty, sure. trying to tell us what to do. <laughs> Where the other guys were just like, look, we just want direction. We just want help. Yeah, so they yeah, all yeah. bought into it. So... I managed to turn that business around and then they couldn't really ignore me. They kind of went, right, look, he's great at what he does. Uh, so, <laughs> so let's promote him. And then in a very short space of time, I became the operations director for the UK, which was the managing director, really, of the United Kingdom. Uh, and when we had, we had a cracking business, we were earning loads and loads of money. Uh, by this time, sort of like uh, the girl I'd mentioned very early on, still with her, Sharon. So like 30 years later, we're sort of still together. Wow. Uh, and my daughter, Shannon, uh, was born. Uh, and then we floated on the stock market around 2004, I think. So financially, I kind of said I was secure. I'd made enough money. Yeah. Uh, which was very lucky, you know, because again, just seen that little ad. If I hadn't seen that ad. That's crazy. If I hadn't it? went to London, if I hadn't phoned up that guy, if that guy had told me he's a managing director. Do you know what's mad? I just think it's mad that you got the job. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, the fact that you were able to, like, see, like pitch yourself and actually get in there is unbelievable. <laughs> Waffle and like. It's class. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but, but, I suppose, but then, you know, it, it is about sort of, if you're going to promote something, the one thing you must be able to promote then is yourself. Yeah. If you're going to go in and sort of talk about a product, but you can't promote yourself, then you're in the wrong job. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, I just didn't know I had those skills to, to pursue those skills. Yeah. So anyway, so, got, got through right then, and then my missus started on about, you know, should we go home? Mm-hmm. I'd really want to go home. My parents are getting older. You know, can we go home? Go home. So she Northern Irish. She's from she's from Dungannon in uh, South Road. Yeah, yeah. So I said to her, "Look, let's leave it to 2008. Well, whatever happens in 2008, unbeknownst to me, there's going to be a massive crash in 2008." <laughs> uh, I had to sort of go out and try and get man-sized nappies because I, sort of, I was so nervous over that period. And uh, we we got to there anyway, and we bought a house back home uh, around 2006. So so again, you know, we were all okay financially. Uh, and she just says, right, let's do it. So 
at the very height of an achievement where we'd got to where to go, I went, look, guys, I'm leaving. And they started laughing. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm really leaving. I'm, I'm going to, Sharon wants to go home. I, I have caved in. I'm going with her. Uh, so we'd leave and do, bought me a watch, really nice watch. And then I thought, right, I'm unemployed. And I'm back home in Northern Ireland in a place called Dungannon. <laughs> I don't know anyone. Right? And because I've been away for such a long time, and again, you don't realise this. Like, like you, Matthew, because you've been away for a bit, so you, you'll get a, a bit. But I completely lost touch with everybody I knew in Northern Ireland. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'd, I'd come back and I went, right, contacts. Who do I know? Who can I phone up mm-hmm. and find out what's going on? Is there something I can get involved in? Is there something I can maybe add to or, or, or do something? And I didn't know anybody. Nobody. Uh, and the mates had grown up with were kind of still very working class guys. So although they were great guys, they were, they were, they were, they were nice people and stuff, th- there was no advantage to knowing them. They couldn't point me in the direction of a business mm-hmm. or a company or an idea. So I, I kind of thought, well, I'm still young-ish. I don't want to just sit in the house and watch Countdown. I want to kind of... <laughs> no, no, but because it goes through your head. You go, you know, what are you going to do? And I went, I, I need to do something. And I remember, this is the weirdest thing ever, right? So you got to remember, I'm successful, I'm wealthy, I've got money, I've got no mortgage, got a big house, got a nice BMW sitting uh, outside. And I remember talking to a guy I knew who got a job on Ulster Bus. Okay. I'm being jealous. Wow. Being, you know, because he had something to do, it's something to get up and it's something to go <laughs> to and it's something to come home from. Unbelievable. And I thought, right, I need, that, that, that's just proved it, right? I'm not finished, I need to do something. And I did a wee bit of work here and there for people, which I didn't like. Uh, most notably, again, and probably for the first time in my life, sort of went, you know what? You're a lot cleverer than you think, and you're a lot business, more business savvy than a lot of people you're speaking to. Because mm-hmm. I spoke to a lot of recruitment consultancies, um, and they're all small. I, I, I'd run a huge, big empire. Uh, when I got back here, and I was saying to the guys, look, I can come in and do stuff for you. And they were just like, uh, mate, we do it. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And if we were to bring someone like you on and pay you the money, we'd have nothing to do. Yeah. So it's, and there were always, it was always two guys. There was mm-hmm. always two guys owned the company. So me and my business partner, my, my business partner and I, we own this here. So, so they're all hands-on owners? All hands-on owners, right? Small companies-ish. And I thought I'd do something. So I sat down and thought, what can I do? And I thought, well, do, do what you know. The financial crisis was, was going on. People were losing money left, right and centre. I thought, well, th- th- there's no money being spent. It's money being saved. So, so start off small. So I set up a company called Black Fox Solutions. It's a recruitment company. Uh, and I thought, right, you don't need to be in Belfast City Centre to do it. I can do it from the Ghana, which was a mistake because I should have been in Belfast City Centre. I just didn't know it. I thought because of the internet and stuff, you, you can work remotely. People don't need to know where you're based. It was very hard getting staff. It was very hard getting motivated staff. Uh, we were saying to people, like, you know, pay you 20, 22,000 pounds a year plus commission up till about 25, 30 grand. You'd be getting ending gallon. That would have been a really good wage. Yeah, sure. But people just weren't that ambitious to do it. People were, you know, and again, without trying to slag people off, it's if you live, see, if you live in a small town, see, if you live in Emmerdale, there's a reason you live in Emmerdale. Because it's a small town and you want an easier life. You don't want the the the, the hubbub of, of, of city life. You don't want the speed, the fastness, the pressure. Uh, and that suits you, which is cool, right? But I was trying to bring like sort of high-level sort of sales guys through and the training thing in that area. And it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. So I remember sort of talking to a guy in London and I said, you know what, I need to, I just need to set up a business that, that runs properly, that runs in con- the way I want it to run, the way I know it can run. So I was going to set a business up in Belfast. And, and I said, I want it to be called, I want people to know immediately, immediately what it's called and what it does. So come up with the name Reactive Recruitment. So if you've got a problem, 
not the Ghostbusters thing. If you've got, you know, <laughs> the A team, you got a problem, you have to find it. You can contact the A team. No, it was, uh, it was just like, so when people go see it online, they go, what does that company do? They'll know immediately. And I met this guy uh, through a couple of introductions, really weird introduction uh, for the job. And, and his name is Paul. And I'd spoke to Paul. Paul, a lot of local knowledge, a lot of local sort of like uh, connections and stuff. Told him what I wanted to do. Actually, before that, I met this woman, that is, right? And she was kind of interested. And I remember meeting her for a coffee to tell her what the plan was. And uh, as we sat down in in Harlem, mm-hmm. which is in Belfast City Centre, which is a, 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 like it's a business cafe. Yeah. A lot of business people meet. And I remember sort of going, I think her name was Janet. Hey, Janet, how do you like Max? And she kind of just looked at me. And I don't know if it's because it was on crutches or she's part of the supply, but she instantly disliked me, like immediately oh, really? disliked me, right? And as we sat down, the waitress came over and she looked over and she says, can I have one cup of coffee, please? What? I, and, I, and I went, uh, excuse me, and she goes, oh, if you want a cup of coffee, you'll have to pay for it yourself. What? And I went, well, that's just finished. Yeah, like, see you know, later. Probably no more. <laughs> and I, I said, can I, but she was really limited. She goes, can I have one cup of coffee, please? So and she held her finger up like the one, the point of the one. And I thought, what a weird woman. But anyway, <laughs> so on the back of that, I met Paul. Paul. I'm a bit of a movie buff. Paul's a bit of a movie buff. I'm in the recruitment industry. Paul's recruitment industry. So there's a lot of connections. We, we, we had a lot of sort of things going on. And I told him the idea to set the business up. Uh, and he'd kind of bought in. Uh, and I remember like the first day putting desks and chairs together. You know, the first official day like you started. Uh, we said, right, so here we go. And there was a real buzz to it. Mm-hmm. That there was never down in Dungannon. Mm-hmm. You could just tell it was a bit different. Even outside, people walking around. Yeah, you were yeah, like yeah. in the student quarters, really buzzy. And I went, man, this is, this is fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's really energizing. And I made the decision straight away. I, I spoke to the guy in the building and said, have you any other office space? And he goes, we have a small, small room. Uh, at the back that I can rent you out. Uh, within a week, I'd, I'd either told the guys you can move to Belfast with us, it'll give you redundancy. Uh, nobody wanted to work up in Belfast except <laughs> one guy. So the other guys were made redundant. I shut the business down. I moved it completely to Belfast with this one guy. And sort of went, this is the right thing to do. Uh, and, and kind of went, and it's weird because see, one, you got to be very hands on. Oh, yeah. So you're on, and you got to be a leader. You got to like sort of like, you know, it's all right. People say, uh, like people said to me, sure, the boss, you can do what you want. And you, but you can't. You know, if I do what I want, if I just lay in bed or get drunk or go and party or on holiday and just leave it to look after yourself, sure. it'll just it'll implode, it'll shut down. Yeah. So you have to be quite hands-on, especially at the very start. So I was there, hard work beats talent, talent doesn't work hard. I was there to start hitting phones, talking to people, setting up meetings, doing, do, doing what you need to do, spending more money in advertising than we probably wanted to, but we wanted to get ahead, mm-hmm. taking risks, uh, and then, then we pushed both the businesses as hard as we possibly could. To to now we just we just did our five year anniversary there, and uh, we went down to down Royal, mm-hmm. and we were able to take out a private box. Mm-hmm. We were able to lay on you know all the food, all the drink. And one of the weird things, mom, when you employ people here, uh, and I say, do you want to go out for a drink? And I'll take them out for a drink. If we go out for a drink, and you say, what do you want? And I'll go, oh, I'll just have a pint. Yeah. But when I take them out, they only drink cocktails. <laughs> They only drink cocktails, right? And it's not just like sort of, it's like sort of, see these 12 pound cocktails? Can we have seven of them, please? And just keep them coming. But there's a quid pro quo. So what we do is we, we, we have like lunch clubs. So anybody who's done well during the month, we'll take them out. We're going out today. Actually, we're in a restaurant uh, from, from one o'clock. We've got sort of seven people coming with us. We kind of reward them. We do the, the, we do the, the, the anniversary thing to get the race. Like, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if you've ever been to Down Royal. I, it was the first time I'd ever been. And as you walk through the gate, there's a band. 
Like there's, there's a proper band, guitars, keyboards, guys singing with a suit on, a drummer, just in the middle of this field yeah. as you just walk through. Uh, so it was really good crack, man. You should, if you haven't been before, you should go. Uh, and then we'll do the competitions. And it's just to keep the guys. I, I kind of thought, Matthew, see if you're going to work somewhere. Where would you want to work? And I'm not a big fan of this. Come in when you want, leave mm-hmm. when you want. Because I think in our game, you kind of need a structure. Yeah. If you're a creative person, you know, you're obviously a very creative person. So you can switch it on and switch it off when you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could maybe go home at, and at half six or half eight at night, say, I'll do a bit of work. And maybe find look up when it's two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But that's, that's what creative people do. Yeah. And you can do that type of thing. And, and it was Google who introduced it. Uh, all these laid back stuff, but it was Google invented all these laid back ideas stuff. But you also are so in a business where it's you know you operate within the fee stars. You know, where you're trying to call people, you're trying to get access to people oh, yeah, yeah. whenever they need to be at the phone, which yeah. is usually in that nine to five. In that nine to five thing. So yeah. we, we we focus it around that there. Uh, then we try to give rewards and we try to try and be a nice company. So we'll do like coffee mornings, we'll do pizzas, we'll do the lunch club thing where every month we take people out to lunches. We recently. Uh, uh, with Black Fox uh, sent someone out to New York uh, with their partner and we paid flights, hotels, spend the money, the works. Uh, we will do competitions. Uh, the, the, the best competition, right? This is the weirdest thing and it, and it sounds completely sexist and I'm really sorry for saying it, okay? Uh, but it's true. I've, I've evidence that it's true. We did this competition we said, look, if, if you can do this within your job to a certain level, we'll buy you a thousand pound handbag yeah, or we'll buy you a sixty-five inch four K uh, smart TV. Yeah, and, and everybody went ballistic, <laughs> right? And and there was a woman who who uh, won one of the competition things, and it's good. And I look, no, handbag, handbag, <laughs> handbag, right? And we went around the house of Fraser, and we bought her this thousand pound Mulberry handbag, yeah. right? And she's delighted. She's absolutely delighted, and she's. <laughs> About a week later, she was telling uh, my missus that she went home and that a, that a Chinese to celebrate. And she went upstairs to bed and she put the, the, the handbag on the pillow next to her. <laughs> with the handbag next to her. That's hilarious. Because And she just goes, but it, it was, it's so important. It's yeah. such a status symbol. Really yeah. And you'd be accused of being sort of sexist. But it's true, you know. And if I had tried to push a 65-inch TV onto her, it probably wouldn't have motivated her. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's enabled us now, you know, with Black Fox and Reactive Recruitment, we're able to, like, we we, uh, we sponsored, the, do you know Ireland has a wheelchair rugby team? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. we sponsored them. Uh, they, they went over to the World Cup, didn't do very well, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, but they were in Australia, uh, and, and we were the guys, we were, we were part of the team who sort of sponsored them to go, because it's a good thing to do. So now that the business are established, now that sort of, you know, I'm in, I'm in the 50s now. You. Uh, in the 50s. <laughs> uh, and I've been successful, you know, and touch wood, man, I have been successful. I've worked hard. You, you do have to work hard. Yeah. One of the things I think that sort of like, uh, I'd like to say that people, people come in to think, if you just have an idea today and that idea works, then that's you, you're rich, mm-hmm. you're rich. But unless you can write a number one hit or album that sells millions of pounds all over the world, and you receive the royalties from it for the rest of your life. You, you then then you can't have that life. Mm-hmm. But if you're just not that artistic, if you're sort of not that sort of sort of special in that department, and you have to work for your career, you, you kind of just have to accept you got to work hard. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to kind of sort of push yourself. And there's rewards to that. I don't think there's nothing wrong with working hard. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, some of my working class friends, uh, guys who my mates way 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 back in the day, still still my friends, they'll say things like, uh, "I'd rather be happy." Uh, than 
I'd rather be happy than be rich. Yeah. You go, mate, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with working a little bit hard mm-hmm. and pushing yourself to get the rewards uh, that, that you think you deserve. And I also think as well that, that you know, for the generations coming up and out there, you need to be honest. You need to sort of go, mate, there, there's no easy fix. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, even in itself, success is a journey. It's not a destination. I, I know loads of people who were, and I'm sure you do, who, who were successful or, or who looked like things were going really well for them. And then all of a sudden the wheels come off mm-hmm. and then it's hard to sort of get it back again. Yeah. So, you know, I suppose being a kid growing up in West Belfast, I've probably not done that bad. I don't, I don't wallow in the fact that I'm, I'm like, I've now got a bit of money and stuff. In fact, it's probably the opposite. I, I'm, I'm still a bit of a worrier. Mm-hmm. I still worry about, right, are we doing this? Are we doing that? I still, Carry work with me all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, funny, even my brother-in-law messaged me. He was like, do you ever, do you never switch off? Mm-hmm. And you, you if you love something, if you do something that you love doing, you, you never switch off. Again, I'm sure you'll be having a painter eating something or watching something. Something comes into your it's head. It's always ticking over. And you're always ticking over. Yeah. You're always thinking about yeah. it. You're always trying to improve it or, or reinvent it mm-hmm. or, or come up with something that somebody else hasn't thought of. You know, and, and that's a good thing because... Like in my game, there's a lot of competition in my game. You're always sort of being pushed or you're always chasing. Uh, and then in your game, I suppose, as well, you've, you've, there's, there's always sort of things you're trying to come up with that's more unique, yeah. that, that's cleverer, that, that's more interesting to, to, to the listener. Mm-hmm. So, But that's just what it is, isn't it? Sure. I, I, and I don't really sort of think and that's something you should do. At the end of the day, it's connecting to people, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's finding ways to resonate and really actually create some sort of change within them. Do you know, funny enough, you saying that, it just made me think that sort of like, that's probably one of the best things, the amount of people you get to meet. Mm-hmm. The amount of like, you know, uh, the amount of positive, nice, outgoing, interesting people you get to meet in your life because of what you do. Yeah. And, and, and kind of where it takes you. You know what I mean? That, and, and then again, you, you meet people who are really inspirational. You meet people yeah. who... who kind of sort of make you feel good about yourself and make you want to go out and sort of do stuff. And there's probably just not enough of that. Yeah. Really, I, I don't think sort of, you know, we're, we're, we were cynical and with online now stuff, we've probably got more cynical. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you ever hear of someone trying to do something nice, the first thing people do is slag them off. <laughs> Try and find out what's he want, yeah, what's yeah, he up to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he's just probably being a nice guy. But yeah, yeah I, I suppose, yeah, it's worked out so far. Yeah. So it's actually really funny. You're you're like a bit of a prophet here. Um, I have all these questions here to kind of cover all the angles of your story, and you literally have just done it, and you tied it off perfectly with the great wee bow. The the circular nature of that narrative there was phenomenal. <laughs> so I actually I actually don't need to ask anything else. I will switch gears a wee bit here. Okay. So at the end of every show, we try to start to land the plane with a wee bit more. Uh, personal questions okay. a wee bit more kind of maybe diving into the nitty-gritty of like stuff you've learned experiences we've heard this class journey you've been on now this is the part where you kind of are like let's unpack it and let's let's see so uh, i ask all these questions to every single guest it's always interesting to see how they respond before i get into those four final questions uh you mentioned your movie buff. I was keeping a wee bit of a tally in my head of how many movies has he mentioned in this podcast. You're on at least seven. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, he, he, he really likes movies. And the question I have for you is, are there any movies that you always go back to rewatch? Oh, goodness me, yeah. And, you know, if you want to talk about one or two, what? and I suppose why those movies are, are so important to you. That's right. Here's how much of a movie buff I am, right? If you said me what's your favorite movie, I'd have to say... In what, what category? What category? <laughs> is it gangster? Is it comedy? <laughs> Favourite movie of all time is It's Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Mm. Uh, and weirdly, like how geeky nerd is this, right? Every Christmas, I drag my family to Queen's Film Theatre 
Were they short? I've been there. I, I've yeah. sat in the seats. It's class at Christmas yeah, time. Yeah. I, you get a glass of wine. Yeah, it's so yeah, cool. You get a drink. Yeah. And I, Black and white year, movie on screen. Yeah, come every on. year I drag them. And, no, you're coming. You're coming. Yeah. And then when they go, they, they, they really like it. But when I go, uh, I love Sound of a Woman. Sound of a Woman with Al Pacino's amazing movie. It's an old movie now. I think it's 1982. But it's just this really good story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Pacino's brilliant. Uh, obviously, things like Goodfellow, Godfather, really mm-hmm. good. On the Water from a Martin Brando, mm. 1950s movie. Amazing movie. So when Brando was probably at his peak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Love Goodwill Hunting. So Goodwill Hunting is part one of my favorite movies. It's amazing. And Ben Affleck doesn't get the credit. The bit no. in the interview. I know. Where the guys, you guys are suspect. <laughs> suspect. Okay. And I'll be watching that for you. Right? It's an amazing movie. But again, the theme about it is just kind of sort of like triumph over adversity. Sure. And maybe that theme within the movies that, that I like yeah. uh, is, is probably reflective of the person and character that I am. Yeah, I mean, well, Goodwill Hunting, you know, Boston, working class, two two dudes trying to make their way in the world and dealing with all of the mental and emotional baggage that comes with all that. Like, mm-hmm. I just love that Robin Williams scene where he finally cracks him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, oh, we, we do it all the time. Oh, we, man. We, we see the legs, we'll pull off, it's not your fault. I was like, you good while hunting me? Tell me it's not your fault. Are you good while hunting me? Or that bit, you know the bit, I think it was a bit in, um, in, in that new girl with the guy sort of going, out, oh, get out of here, get out of here. Are you white fanging me? Are you white fanging me? Uh, so it's, it's weird because like, there's Paddy, there's um, Paul, there's Meg, there's Ben, it didn't yeah. work, and there's Jack, and they, they're all movie buffs. Yeah. So we'll do like references all the time. So funny. So like the other day we were in, and, all, and I was checking on the one of the desk, there's loads of cables. I went, what, what is this? An Indiana Jones movie? <laughs> uh, and they got the reference immediately. All the snakes, they got the reference immediately. So I suppose Goodwill Hunting, I watch all the time. Yeah. Uh, a Few Good Men, Tom Cruise. Love that movie. It's a great movie. Jack Nicholson. Mm. Uh, Jack Nicholson, sorry. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could go on. Like there's loads. Yeah, yeah. There's loads of 12 Angry Men. Uh, Rio Bravo, John Wayne. Oh my God! Let me ask you: this. What's the best movie you've seen in the cinema in the last couple of years? Gladiator. Yeah, Gladiator. I wanted to beat somebody up at the end of it. <laughs> I parked. I remember I was in London and I just got back. Hang to on, it. Max. That movie's not two years. It's Gladiator's oh, gotta, gotta be, years. Gotta be no, ten see, years at least. <laughs> I, I just remember going to watch it. The other. Just got back. It clearly made such a big impact. You're like, whoa! I'm a missus had been in Ireland with with Nipper, and I thought that Sunday two o'clock. I'm, I'm absolutely exhausted. But yeah. I thought I'll go to the cinema. And I so went good. To cinema, watch Gladiator. I've walked out 10 foot tall. <laughs> 10 foot, like, you know, I am maximum. Uh, last couple of years, good movie. What would be a good movie last couple of years? I watched, I watched The Favourite uh, mm. where won the Oscar, and that wasn't a good movie. That wasn't a good movie at all. Uh, but I can see why she won the Oscar. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I suppose all the, the X-Men and, and the, the superhero movies, yeah. I, really, I really liked... Uh, I really like the, the new Spider-Man. Oh, he's classic. For some he? reason. Oh, he's got uh, such a, a real, like, quirky charm to him. Like, he's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really works. Uh, any of the Batman movies, anything Christian Bale's in, yeah. I, I think's just unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, I, I just anything, really. I think it's got a bit of, bit of, bit of, bit of depth to it. Cool. I, I, I'll watch. Cool. I, sorry, actually, do you know what, what I did watch? Manchester by the Sea. Mm. Ben Affleck's brother, Kiss yeah. Affleck. Yeah. Right? But I watched it drunk the first time. <laughs> okay. Right? I thought it was awful, and I thought I'd have to watch it again sober. Yeah. So I sat me on and watched it again sober because he he'd won the Oscar for it. Yeah. And it's not that good a movie, mm-hmm. but he's really good. Sure. You can see why he won the Oscar. Yeah. So recently, it's probably uh, cool. Manchester by the Sea. Cool. No, I was just I was just curious. I uh, 
I do love movies. And uh, whenever you had sent that through, I was like, oh, I've got to find out, you know, a couple of his favorite movies. Uh, okay, so we're into the, the final four here. Okay. And the first one is probably the most difficult question, uh, particularly for Northern Irish people. And that's why we ask it. And it is, what was the most successful moment of your life? The most successful moment in my life, but besides family and stuff, you know, like the children and all that stuff. So I don't want to try and like wimp out and, and just say all that there. The most successful moment of my life probably would have been making that phone call mm. all those years ago to Simon Arbor. Because uh, that was the game changer. You know, that was the bit where kind of I stepped up two or three gears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really sort of like said, you know, can I, you know, there's an opportunity here to... To, to be that successful person, I always strive to want to be. Yeah. But but to have this, not not uh, someone who pretends they're wealthy, not someone who, you know, uh, who's in debt constantly, not, and, and pretends that this is my favorite restaurant and this is my favorite wine, and, <laughs> and we only shop in these shops. But you know that the credit cards are always at the forefront of the mind. To, to have sort of like decent wealth, uh, that phone call changed everything. Mm. Thank you. Water. And uh, yeah, yeah, and and but but even, not even just that. There educationally, if I think back to to going in there, and you know, this guy I mentioned, Russ, Russ be like, uh, read this book and read that book, and he gave me these books that I would never read, like books about sort of politics, books about sort of history. I saw you sent through that Michael Lewis book. I've only started getting into Michael Lewis. Interesting cat. Michael Lewis is amazing. Yeah, Michael Lewis. Many years ago, for you who don't know who he is, because The Big uh, Short's one of my favorite movies. Big Shorts, an amazing Was movie. he Moneyball as well? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a class movie. His Moneyball. stuff is, is really good. Here's one thing. Do you know he, he, he was the guy behind The Blind Side? I didn't Sandra know Bullock. He had what? written the book. That was him? Yeah, he had written the book. It was his book, The Blind Side. Uh, and he'd done this book years ago called Large Poker. When he worked at Selma Brothers, which is an investment bank in New York. And he had written the book because he thought he was so disillusioned by what they get up to and so, so disgusted by their attitude, the money that he, he wrote, a, wrote a book to put people off ever working on the stock exchange. Wow. And it made millions of people want to work in the stock exchange. <laughs> Have you ever seen Wolf of Wall Street? Yes, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, so, so there's there's this uh, there's this bit where he, he gets like a really bad Forbes article written up about him and he's devastated. He thinks the company's going to go under and the next day he goes into work and there's like hundreds of people show yeah, yeah. up and they're like, I want to work for you. <laughs> they call me the Wolf of Wall Street. It's disgusting. Yeah, I remember that. But yeah, so uh, the, the, the Boomerang book uh, is a really good book because it just, it just explains what happened after the financial collapse mm-hmm. with all the different countries and how they reacted to it. Cool. And I just found it really interesting to see the sort of how different countries react very, very differently to the financial crisis mm-hmm. and how they worked out a strategy to get out of it. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's definitely be on the list. I just finished an amazing one by him, a friend recommended to it. It's called The Undoing Project. Check it out. Yeah, what's that about? Interesting. It's about two Israeli psychologists, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, and they basically are the grandfathers of what we know now as behavioral economics. It is oh, wow. unbelievable. If that sounds any way boring to you, I promise you it's not. You know the way he writes. They, you know, they never are. Oh, my they goodness. They never are. They're like, really, the really The story of these guys' lives, and these guys are like, you know, university professor, professors one week, and then Israel's at war, and the next week they're off in the war, and then they're back teaching, and then they're at war again. And you know what I mean? Like the, the personal kind of uh-huh. tangle of it all is just unbelievable. And their research it is so, so fascinating because most of the big kind of societal behavioral economic factors that are at play today and a lot of advertising actually is actually stems from these guys works so it's, it's fast fascinating no, i've um, seen that so i just uh, carry on with that i watched the show on netflix about Mossad and israel and israel gets at the forefront of everything yeah everything <laughs> yeah. 
everything. It's crazy. Countries are in trouble. Israel helps out. Yeah. They're unbelievable. But yeah, look out for them. Yeah, there's an Israeli startup in here. They're called Kalu. And they are massively, massively funded all over the world. But they're basically, they're launching this thing called the Belfast Coin. It's really okay. interesting. It's like a local currency. Uh, it's a really interesting idea. And they've got a big backing from Belfast City Council and stuff as well. And it's basically, it could be a really interesting way to uh, keep local money within the local community, but also incentivize people to do civil good. So, for example, oh, they're, okay. they're looking at things like if you recycle... You know, you'll get a wee bit of Belfast coin in your pocket. If you do this, you get a wee bit of Belfast coin in your pocket. Oh, and right, you, okay. So it's, re- it's, it's really interesting, but all stuff going on. Uh, the next question, or the, the third question, third final question, is the opposite of the, the success one, and it's simply what was the most challenging moment of your life, and how were you able to overcome it? Probably, although I suppose probably moving to London the first time. Uh, would have been very challenging. I, I think, uh, although it's probably too thick and too young to realise it, but, but trying to be mentally positive after all the, the operations and, and stuff I had as a kid, and still being told you're not you're, you're not just disabled, you're actually worse than when you come in. I suppose was was a, a tipping point. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm not sure if that didn't help motivate me. Mm. I'm not sure if that type of thing or, or, or that journey didn't help mould who was, you know, if I'd have been an able-bodied person, maybe I'd have had a very different life. Maybe, 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 you know, I'd have been in jail or something, or maybe, you know, uh, I'd have gone down a very, very, very different path. So uh, that was the toughest part. Uh, getting into London, I suppose probably was hard is, is, is the self-motivation. Let's mm. go a wee bit sort of like deep here. Is it sort of to motivate yourself because you have to do it constantly. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there's no destination you can go to where you're permanently happy. You know, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be the happiest person in the world. Right? It just it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. There's no place like that there. Uh, and and you see things today sort of on Instagram and, and on Facebook and stuff. And it's really important to people now to show other people how happy they want to present themselves to be, mm-hmm. which, of course, is not true. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's just, just rubbish. It's just an incident. That smile, take a picture and post yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. it. So it has to be a big thing where I think people genuinely now... This, to, 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 to mention another movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. Oh, my goodness. You know, I watched it last Saturday. But, but if you if you look at the pursuit of happiness, uh, happiness has to mean different things to many, many different people. And it can't just be money. Money does not make you happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of like the people who you share money with can make you happy and the things you go after and use that money to go after those things for can make you happy. But money itself doesn't mm-hmm. make you happy. Money's just a conduit. Uh, so really, I suppose, to give you an honest answer, it's, it's hard because it's a continual thing. I can look at several things. Probably the hardest thing, motivational and and was to see out the first couple of years in London mm. and not give in and not sort of go, do you know what? I do have a bad leg. Yeah. I, I can't walk. Who's going to hold it against me if I go yeah. home and just say, well, I tried my hardest. Sure. And, and, and you know, I didn't do it. So, so the really hard bit was to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. That's brilliant. Really brilliant. This is not a list, it's just a random question. Uh, if it's too personal, you know, we'll skip it. You're in good shape. How? How do you stay fit? Uh, do you know what? It's an interesting question because as I'm getting older, if, if you got to just use your arms to use crutches, like I, I, you won't see, but I use crutches to move around and I wear a brace on my leg that goes to my toes right up to the top of my hip. Uh, so if, if and I'm, I'm a big guy, so I've got big shoulders and stuff, but because I'm on crutches all the time, so I'm, I'm kind of doing a little workout. Interesting. If I'm going anywhere and everywhere. But again, I'm, I'm conscious to a point of what I eat Conscious to a point that I need to look after myself because 
if if something happens to my arms or something happens to the hip of my good leg, mm. it, it means then sort of like it, it'd be a big deal for me. It might yeah. mean you have to end up in a wheelchair. Yeah. Uh, it might mean you have to have loads of convalescence. So you're kind of forced to to transcend shape. So yeah, I, yeah. I try and work out when I can. I have a treadmill, which sounds weird you're on crutches, but use a treadmill, but I do. Uh just to try and burn calories and, yeah. and just to try and a little bit stand ship, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. No, cool. Just was interested. Um, second last question. Go ahead. If you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for coffee or a pint or whatever you wanted, dead or alive, who would you take? Dead or alive. Where would you take them? Do you know, uh, I love the Matt Georgie best. Yeah. I'm a Manchester United supporter. Uh, and I'm kind of old enough to remember George at, at the kind of end of his career coming yeah. to it. But it was just a phenomenon. Uh, I'd met Alex Higgins once. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. I met Alex so Higgins I lived, once. So I lived on a go route at the minute. So I walked past Alex Higgins like, murals yeah. every day. Do you want your funny story? Right? Tell just me, very, yeah. very quickly, right? So when I lived in London, I was coming back. And my mate works in the barn town. And I'd flown back and again. I'd call him and said, look, listen, I'm just landing. Give me a couple of hours to see the folks. And I'll come down and I'll have a drink. And he's like, okay. And we're in the bar chatting away and just out of the corner of the periphery of my eye <laughs> I see this blue hat with a feather okay. go past Yeah, right? and I looked around and I went and I went is that Alex Higgins <laughs> I said did Alex Higgins just walk past me right? and the mate who worked in the bar went where 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 <laughs> me thinking that he was just excited about it was me yeah, and he went yeah. there and he goes that so and so's bar from here yeah. and he ran over and grabbed them and threw him out <laughs> And I went, but Matt's just Alex Higgins. And he goes, he's a so-and-so and so-and-so. Oh, my he's, goodness. He's a real nuisance. <laughs> and I, I said, but that's, that's, that's Alex Higgins. I said, really famous guy. And apparently, you know, the things people say, never meet your heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he'd just come in. He would bar, bar, try and borrow money of people. He'd be rude to people. Try and steal drinks. You know, he'd obviously fall in wow. times. And he'd been barred from the bar. Crazy. Nuts. That's random. But I love the Matt Georgie best. Cool. Where would you take him now? For a paint. <laughs> I know where. Like, where would it take him? Where would Georgie like to go for a drink? George always liked the champagne. Babble. Yeah. Babble. I think it's got a it's got a beer garden. Babble's a nice place. That's it. We really kind of, uh, yeah, but it's kind of flash, but it's yeah. it's casual as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. So I like Babble. That's a good that's a good definition of uh him too, flash but casual. I like that. Uh final question. Uh, it's the question we always like to end with. Uh if you could turn this we recording studio into some sort of time machine. And you go back to, say, a Max just before he's boarding the flight to London. And you have a couple of minutes of an 18-year-old Max's time. What sort of things would you say to him? Do you know, the 18-year-old Max Mac would probably tell me to go go do one. <laughs> say, not interested. Uh, and But if he could, I suppose it's... it's, it's you know what, it's... it's the most obvious and the oldest ones are the ones that that's why they're the most obvious yeah. and the oldest ones you know stick at it you're definitely cleverer than you think right you can definitely do more than you think you can do uh, and, and again sort of like uh, this is very relevant as well but I'd sort of go like the one person in life who should care more about you than anybody else is you mm. right if you don't care about you if you don't want the best for you if you don't want to like you to do as best as you possibly can then there's something wrong there's someone else who seems more interested in your well-being. There's someone else who seems more, more worry more about how you're getting on than you. Then you're not looking after yourself properly. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the one person in life who should want you to do really, really well and be really happy is you. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's what I would say. Unreal, Max. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. We handshake over the microphone there. That's that's flash there. <laughs> <laughs>
Class stuff. Max, man, thank you very, very much for giving us your time to come on and share your story. I mean, what an absolutely epic story. Like, Max's story is literally the script to a movie. (laughs) Oh, man. Any directors listening, like, you need to get on that. Absolutely. This show is made possible by our Producers Club, which is basically a group of listeners just like you who support the show for as little as £1 a month. If you are one of those people, I just want to say thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate it. We're getting very close to the 100 interviews that we set out to do. And if you are interested in joining the podcast's inner circle, you can do so at bestbelfast.org. Basically gives you a glimpse behind the scenes, gets you free tickets to the live podcasts that we run. And depending on which tier you choose to support us at, you may even get a Best of Belfast care package delivered straight to your door every few months. That's it for me for now. If you did enjoy today's show, my email inbox is always open. It's matthewbestbelfast.org. Other than that, have a fantastic rest of your week. I'm looking forward to introducing you to another guest next Monday morning. Thanks a lot and all the very best. Cheers. Hello, my name is Simon Worthington and I am based in Port Stewart. I am the editor of Turf and Grain magazine, an independent magazine which is committed to sharing the stories, experiences and ideas of the people of Ireland. I listen to Best of Belfast because it does the same thing for Northern Ireland and it shows us all that Northern Ireland has a better story to tell than what is often represented in the mainstream media. My favourite episode is the episode with Ryan Crown. Um, Ryan is someone I know and someone whose amazing career I followed quite closely over the years. I support the podcast financially just because it's really important for independent media to receive backing because this is a really important space within our society and this podcast is just doing a really amazing thing for Belfast, if I'm honest. If you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and would miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, I'd highly recommend considering joining it today. You can do that over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to chatting to you in the WhatsApp group soon. Thanks.